Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to be with you this morning. It's nice to hear Ian here in the front as he is back to give his warm greeting. Good to see you again, Lyle. What a busy week this has been. As we had a chance to rally around and gather with and support some grieving families as we said goodbye to some dear saints of the church. But it was so wonderful to see how this church rallied around these families. And so I just want to say thank you with all of the different displays of service from the deaconesses to setting up chairs to preparation of bulletins to participating in the funeral services. Thank you. And let's continue to pray for the Binion family and the Peterson Garcia family. Their loved ones are okay. They're in the presence of the Lord. But for those that remain behind, it's time for us to rally around them and support them as they walk through this season. A special greeting to those of you online. Thanks for joining us this morning. And we trust that you'll follow along as we study God's word together. But thank you for setting aside some time to fellowship with us this morning. If you've not done so already, this is really a good time to check your cell phones to make sure that they're off or turned to silent. Uh, as you know, we, we live stream our services and we don't like to have the phone interrupting the service as it is going out on YouTube. All right, looks like we're all ready. Okay. A number of years ago, my wife and I stood on the floor of the War Museum in Bastogne, Belgium, at the site of what is called the Battle of the Bulge. And up on the walls of this museum, which is many stories high, there are colorful maps showing the movement of the Allied and Axis forces. Arrows moving this way and that way over the course of the several years of the war, showing the progress. It's quite interesting. Especially in light of what's going on in recent days, it's a good reminder that we continually call out to the Prince of Peace uh, to bring peace to all the world. But there was one thing I noticed, and that was that I looked at just one spot or just one aspect of the unfolding maps and, and battles. I would lose perspective. What I really needed was to stand back and see the, the displays all together to get an idea of how the whole helped understand the particular, and then the particular would give reflection on the whole. Well, I find that a particularly good illustration for us as we consider our next passage in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, for we have a passage this morning that maybe we don't spend a lot of attention with. It seems to be tucked away almost in obscurity in the midst of this literary masterpiece, and yet, if we dig down into the details, there's so much for us to be able to discover we get a powerful statement of the sovereignty of God, of his faithfulness, of his heart for the world, of the, the call of the gospel that goes out to all. And perhaps you're thinking as you ponder these verses, really? Do we see all these things here? Well, I invite you to come along with me this morning as we look at this passage of scripture, seeing it in light of the gospel of Matthew, and then bringing in illustrations and teachings from other parts of the scripture to see how the particular fits in with the whole. I know we've done a lot of standing this morning, but I'm still going to ask you to stand one more time as we read God's word in preparation for him teaching us, as we read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. And the holy 
an inspired word of God says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Father, as we've read your word this morning, would you give its instruction, and would you help us by your spirit with its application as we turn to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As you follow along in your sermon outline in the bulletin, we come to our first major point, which is God guides the process. Now, as we begin this part of Matthew chapter 4, we're not sure exactly how much time has lapsed between the period of testing of Jesus in the wilderness and this event. We know that, and we'll see that as we move throughout, that Matthew doesn't necessarily record everything in chronological order, but he does have a process and he does have a system for how he's presenting his material. But it seems that there has been a period of time that has passed between Jesus going through the time of testing and tempting in the wilderness and what we have today. But as God is guiding the process, we see that the forerunner is gone. The forerunner is gone. And our text begins. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And so let's, let's summarize a little bit of how far we've come in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 3, this mysterious figure appears in the wilderness of Judea and starts to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I come as a voice in the desert to prepare the way of the Lord. And as we looked at that passage, we saw that there were several prophecies that were coming to fulfillment in those events. We saw that God will keep his word. So even as we have sung just a few minutes ago, send forth your word. We have every confidence that he will keep it as he does that. And then we saw that Jesus appears on the scene on the banks of the Jordan River. And after this interchange with John the Baptist, he's baptized by John and then goes off into the wilderness for 40 days of trying and tempting and testing to prove, to show that he's the son of God who is qualified to be the Messiah. But Jesus at one point hears that John has been arrested and put in prison. Now the word for arrested here means to be handed over, but oftentimes it's used in the context of to betray someone. So it's the same word that's used for Judas Iscariot who handed over Jesus. He betrayed him. And in some way here, Matthew doesn't tell us how, John has been handed over to the authorities. Now he will come back to the incidences with John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 14, particularly in Matthew chapter 14, it was John who was confronting King Herod Antipas because he was in an adulterous affair with a woman named Herodias. We shouldn't be surprised that neither one of them were very happy to have their sin called out and told that they were in an illicit relationship. And so there was this agreement, as it were, that was made where King Herod boasted that he would give up to half his kingdom and ended up killing John the Baptist. 
reminds me that that has a similar ring today. Kings and even presidents, they don't respond any better when their sin has been pointed out. And instead, oftentimes, of seeking repentance or forgiveness, they lash out at their accusers seeking to punish them. So we're reminded here that there's always an ongoing conflict between light and darkness. That's why we sing, Jesus, send forth your light. Shine, Jesus, shine. And there will always be an ongoing conflict between the governments of this world and the one who was born to be king of the Jews. But God is in control of the process. John is in prison. Eventually he will be killed. And so now the forerunner of the gospel has been moved out of, out of the way, taken away. And the table is set now for the fulfiller of the gospel to take center stage. The baton is being passed, as it were. John will fade into the background. Jesus will come to the foreground. Because Jesus is the one who must be and always will be the centerpiece of God's plan of redemption. John himself understood this when he said that I must decrease and he must increase. It's the same for each of us today. Whatever we do in ministry, in whatever capacity it is, it must always be with the idea that Jesus is the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation. But what's the reaction of Jesus here? Did he go to Jerusalem? I mean, after all, isn't that where you'd want to go, go to the capital city? No, it says he withdrew to Galilee. Well, why did he go there? Is it because he was afraid of Herod Antipas? There are actually some who say yes. He was afraid of what would happen because, after all, John the Baptist was a preacher of righteousness, and look what happened to him. He was put into prison and had his head separated from his shoulders. What about Jesus? He's a teacher of righteousness. Is he afraid that the same thing will happen? And I say no. Because Jesus goes to Galilee. Well, who is in charge of Galilee? Herod Antipas. So he's staying under the same authority of the same ruler, but he's going there under divine guidance. Jesus doesn't do anything by accident or by mistake. All of the steps that he is tracing are the plan of the Father, and so he goes to Galilee under divine guidance. He knew that one day he would die. He said that's why he came. And many times in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I've come for this reason. I will go to Jerusalem. And when the hour of his death, trial and death and crucifixion and resurrection would come, he would boldly march into Jerusalem and face his accusers. But that time was not now. And so he withdraws to Capernaum. But instead of fleeing to Galilee, sorry, he went to Galilee, but instead of fleeing to Galilee, we see him heading to, let me try this again. Instead of fleeing away from Jerusalem to go to Galilee, we see him actually staying in Galilee and going to a particular city in Galilee, which is Capernaum. And there, he sets up a new headquarters. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived at Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. The verb here seems to indicate that he left Nazareth for good and moved to Capernaum, which would become the new headquarters for his messianic ministry. Now imagine being on the city council or the Bureau of Commerce or Chamber of Commerce in Capernaum. Wouldn't you love to put that on your brochure? He left Nazareth and he came to Capernaum. Capernaum where it all began for the Messiah. 
But all of this was happening under the divine control of God. Now, it's interesting that the name of the city Capernaum means the house of Nahum. Nahum, of course, was a prophet, but we don't actually know where the name here came from. But this would prove to be a very strategic city for Jesus to start his ministry. Capernaum was located at the crossroads of several important trade routes on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It had great influence, economic influence and political influence. It was a very busy place. Unlike Judea, which was somewhat remote, Capernaum was where the action was at. That's where the merchants came and traveled and traded and where they'd also bring back whatever messages they had heard while they were in Capernaum. It would be located at enough of a distance from Jerusalem where Jesus could operate freely as he is launching his ministry in the region of Galilee. There were many villages around, and it was of such a size that it even had a Roman centurion, indicating that there was a large presence of Roman soldiers there. Capernaum had a customs post, and that will come up later as we go through Matthew, the importance. It had a large administrative center. And it was surrounded on three sides by people whose background was predominantly Gentile. So it was a very strategic place for him to start. But there's actually more to the story. For you see, mentioned in this list are the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali. This was originally to be their territory. But if you recall, or you can review, if we go back and look in the book of Judges, these were two of the tribes that did not obey God and chase out the inhabitants from their region. And so as the inhabitants, the Canaanites, stayed in those tribes, the people of Israel plunged themselves into compromise. And at long last, the patience of God ran out, and it was the people of this region that were carried into exile in 732 B.C. when the Assyrian leader Tiglath-Pileser, Assyria, invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and threatened the southern kingdom of Judah. God had said, repent, or I will bring judgment. And generation after generation, we saw in the book of Judges, did not repent. They continued in their spiritual adultery and infidelity to God. And so they were carried away as a result of God's judgment. But the people longed to come back. But what did they come back to? Because Tiglath-Pileser would carry some of the Israelites into exile and then bring in other people to populate the area. And so there was a mixture of people that were going on in this region. But as I said, the Jewish people longed to take back control of that area. And very briefly, they did. For there was a revolt in the early 2nd century by the Hasmoneans. Or Hasmoneans, some might say. It was, they took back control. They wanted to bring in temple worship. They wanted to have control of the area. And for a brief period, they did. They had a leader named Aristobulus who reasserted for a time Jewish control over this area. And Aristobulus was in a hurry to make sure that they quickly became Jewish again. So he ordered that all of the men be circumcised and at least externally conform to the practices of the temple. But because that was all external, it didn't reach the hearts of the people, and so they remained pagan and Gentile on the inside while externally, outwardly practicing Jewish customs. Do you see the mixture that's going on when Jesus sets up his headquarters in Capernaum? And now let's think about the conflict then that would have existed within Israel itself. We've talked about this already briefly a few few weeks ago. 
But the Judeans and the Galileans were suspicious of one another. And now you understand a little more why. Judea was in more of a remote area. They steadfastly clung on to their Jewish traditions. They were suspicious of Jews in other regions, perhaps not seeing them as full Jews or complete Jews. And so you can imagine then the leaders in Judea would be suspicious of a carpenter from Galilee who wants to come and preach the gospel. But God is guiding the process. He has brought the forerunner of the gospel into place, and then the forerunner of the gospel has been removed, and the, the one that is the fulfiller of the gospel, the fulfiller of the promises, the one who was born in Bethlehem but moved to Nazareth is now in Galilee and, and Capernaum, who will begin his ministry for such a time as this. But how does this affect us today? If we begin with the idea that God guides the process, are you able to recognize God's control in all things in your own life? Think about John the Baptist. Being thrown into prison, being falsely accused, and then being killed was probably not part of his life plan. And yet he went through it because it was God's plan so that the gospel might go forward. So here's the question. Are you willing to trust God even when life hurts? Is God still God even when life is a bit of a drag? Maybe you're wrestling with some doubts this morning. Maybe even with some anger over some things that have happened. If that's the case, take some time this week to just reread what's going on in Matthew chapter 4 and how Jesus is preparing the way for him to be the Messiah and a Savior of each one of us from our sins. And notice that each one of these things, some of them as painful as they were, were used as God to move forward His cause that will glorify His name throughout all the nations. Friends, you can trust God with everything in your life. Everything. Because He guides the process. Secondly, God keeps His promises. Years ago, like many men in the church here, I had the privilege of being involved with the Promise Keepers movement. I happened to be at seminary, and we went with a group of men to uh, a, a big stadium event, and it was, a, it was a challenging time. It was a good time. It was a growing time. It was good to see men get serious about God, about His Word, about loving their wives, loving their kids, being the spiritual guides in their homes. I took it seriously because I knew that my wife and my kids were depending upon me to be faithful to my vows and my commitments. But there's a sad reality in all of that that I had to learn painfully, and that is try as hard as I might. I was not a perfect promise keeper because I was still a sinner myself that needed the grace of God. I made mistakes. I said wrong things. I did wrong things. So as much as I wanted to be the promise keeper that I knew I needed to be, and I tried as hard as I could, it forced me to fall on my knees and say, there is only one promise keeper, and that is the Lord himself. And I'm dependent upon him and all that I do. What God says will happen. 
and we can take it to the bank because his timing and his method are different than ours. He keeps his promises. And as a result, the beginning of this ministry of Jesus will happen in just the right place. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. We'll stop there. But much of the ministry of Jesus would take place in Galilee, not so much in Judea. This is what the religious elite would not like. But Jesus is demonstrating from the beginning that he would spend time with the outcasts, the downtrodden, the rejected, the unclean. He was a savior who had come to save those who recognized their need of salvation, not those who thought they were self-righteous or righteous in their own actions. Well, if we look at a little more detail at some of these regions that are here, we have Zebulun, Naphtali, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. We're told that there were approximately 15,000 people that lived in that area at that time, which for its time was a very populated area. And it was a prophetic place to start. And so Jesus moving here was of divine direction and divine purpose. So let me, let me spell it out as clearly as I can. Jesus beginning his public preaching ministry in the region of Capernaum was exactly where Isaiah the prophet said it would begin 700 years before the fact. God keeps his promises. Now that's amazing in itself. But the extent to which God keeps his promises are even greater. Because this promise comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And what's the consequences? What are the, what are the circumstances of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9? In those chapters, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, Isaiah the prophet is saying from God that God is going to bring the Assyrians the vicious, wicked enemies of the people of Israel to come and judge his people. And he will take them into exile. And that's exactly what happened in 732 B.C. But in the midst of that promise of God that he would bring disciplining judgment against his people, he gave a promise. And he showed that promise through the giving of a son, first promise to the prophet in Isaiah chapter 7, but ultimately in Isaiah chapter 9, a verse that we recite at Christmas, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it is those very people who were walking in spiritual darkness in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 who received the promise of the light of Isaiah chapter 9. It is as if God is saying, yes, this land will be destroyed. It will be put under enemy control. But the day is coming when a new kingdom will be brought in. The old Israelite kingdom that continually went against the ways of God would be carried off. And a new kingdom would come. But it will be a different type of kingdom. A spiritual kingdom. A righteous kingdom. But a kingdom was inaugurated nonetheless with the coming of Christ. And so those who were the hearers from the region of Zebulon and Naphtali, they were among the first to be carried off into exile. 
and they would be among the first to receive the promise of the new king upon which the light would shine. And then notice the mention about Galilee of the Gentiles. From the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he makes it clear that Gentiles will be included in the ministry of Jesus. And you recall in chapter 1 and verse 1, it refers to Jesus as the son of Abraham. And it was through Abraham that a blessing would be given to all nations. And in the unfolding of the story of the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as the ultimate son of Abraham. And the ultimate one who would fulfill the promises. And so right in the place where Jesus begins his public ministries, there is a place called Galilee of the Gentiles. And it will end with a command to make disciples of all nations. And actually in in the New Testament, the same word is often used for Gentiles and for nations. So through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. That was a promise that Israel knew and was to keep, but they were not very faithful in seeing that the peoples around them were blessed by the truths of God. In fact, they often compromised with the errors of the Baals and the Ashtaroths and the other false gods. They were eager to keep the blessings for themselves. They got arrogant in thinking that they were chosen because they were special. And they had reversed it. That it's because they were chosen that they were special. It was God who was in charge. They had been chosen by grace, not by race. And in the rebellion, they they acted as if they deserved God's blessing. But those dirty other Gentiles, they did not. Of course they did not. But neither did Israel, which he had been great beneficiaries of the mercies of God. Well, we who are the children of Abraham, according to the Apostle Paul, we're the beneficiaries of God's great mercy and grace today. And so let us not fall into the trap then that somehow inherently we were better and we deserve the mercies of God. Because mercy by its, never, its nature can never be demanded. Grace can never be required. Otherwise, they're no longer mercy or grace. We are inherently beggars who by God's grace have heard of the bread of life. And therefore, we invite others to come and join in finding that bread for eternal life. And so right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we're reminded that he came to save both Jews and Gentiles. And these different groups that are mentioned in verse 15 make that clear, that the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel would begin here, go throughout these regions, and continue onward. Now, it is true that there were many times where Jesus focused his ministry primarily on Jews, but he did not do so exclusively and only. This passage foreshadows the full intentions for which he came when he would say, go and make disciples of all nations at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And so as we recognize that God keeps his promises and that this was just the right time, we announce that the light has come. The people dwelling in darkness, the text says, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Notice the word dwelling. It's an ongoing action that this is the ongoing status. They were in darkness, not a physical darkness, a spiritual darkness of moral confusion and compromise. 
And notice that this ministry of light will not begin in Jerusalem where the Jewish leaders would have expected, but among those regions that were considered the darkest, among those who were considered the least deserving of God's mercy. But think of the mercy of God in places where it is explained that there was death and darkness. There's now come life and light. It, it models for us the gospel, that it, the gospel comes upon the most needy, the most despised, because all of us, in fact, are in that category. Friends, we were all born as children of the darkness. We were all born as enemies of God. We all needed that heart operation that only God, the Holy Spirit, can operate where he takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And then we're able to behold the light of the truth and we see the darkness of our sin and we run to the cross and say, God, have mercy on even me, a sinner. The reference to the light comes from Isaiah chapter 9, but it is a fulfillment of the passage that Brother Tim read during the time of the invocation. Isaiah chapter 60, arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the, the peoples, but God will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. In John chapter 1, the first few verses talks about how the light has come into the world, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Of course, whenever there is darkness, and the light shines, the darkness must flee. And now we understand perhaps in just a little bit deeper way what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. Think of how important light is. And then imagine the gospel as that shining light that comes into a world of darkness. You don't realize how important the light is until you're forced to spend time in the dark. In the summer of 1986, I had the privilege of spending several weeks in the country of Kenya, preaching the gospel in rural areas, showing the Jesus film, teaching new believers how to walk with Christ. It was a fantastic and growing summer. But there was one day I was assigned to drive our little pickup truck from one city down to the coastal city of Mombasa, which is on the coast of the Indian Ocean. And we were to pick up an evangelism team. Well, on the way there, I was driving alone. My truck overheated, and I had to pull off the road. Now, as it turned out, in the providence of God, hidden behind all of those bushes and brush and trees was a little village. And almost immediately, the villagers were upon me looking to see how they could help. Now, there was no electricity in that village, and there wasn't a car to be found. But somehow, they knew that we needed to try to put water in the car. So they rush off and pull some water out of a well, and we, we put some water in. But the problem was the radiator had sprung a leak, and the engine had overheated. And so then they helped me push the truck off the road, behind the bushes, behind the trees, into the village. Because if I left it there overnight, it would have been stripped clean by morning. Well, this is long before cell phones. And long before really pay phones. And, and moreover, they didn't have electricity. So how could I let the party on one end and the party on the other end know what had happened to me? I couldn't. But you see, I was a college student. And I knew it all. So rather than accept their invitation to stay in the village, I said, no, I'm going to walk back from where I came. Kenya is on the equator, which means then that the days and the nights are about of equal length, 
And when the sun starts to go down, it goes down quickly. And so I had started out with it being sunny. I had my sleeping bag. I had my bag of cashews. And I'm watching, and suddenly it's dark. And I'm walking along this road. And it dawns on me, no pun intended, where I was. Because I didn't know whether just beyond those bushes and brush and trees, there might be a lion or some other wild animal. Moreover, when the sun came down, the bandits came out. So I could be easily overwhelmed by a group of bandits. So what did I do? Well, I did what I knew what to do, and that was I started singing hymns out loud, praying out loud, and trying to keep a brave demeanor. But man, I was shaken like a leaf inside. I was scared. I was alone. I was out in the dark. I didn't have a phone. I'm wandering in a country I do not know. And I'm just hoping that I don't get noticed by something that I don't want to notice me. And suddenly, I began to see it. Oh, it was very faint at first, but way off in the distance, I, I saw a little glimpse of light. And it kind of came up over a little hill, and then I realized it was the headlights of a vehicle. And as it got closer, I thought I need to get the attention of this car. And so I jump out in the, the middle of the highway, and I start waving my arms frantically. It was a Matatu, which is the Kenyan public bus. Ken, the Matatu means room for three more, so you can imagine what the buses look like. But this was at night, and I saw that the driver wasn't going to stop. And so I got out of the way as he went zooming by, but all of a sudden, I heard the tires squeal and the brake lights came on. And he turned around and he came back and he opened the door and he yelled at me to get in. And as it turned out, it was a church member of a church that I had preached in the previous Sunday. He had told me that there was no way he was going to stop because of the bandits. But when he saw who I was, he let me in. I had seen a great light, and it had brought a form of salvation and deliverance. That's the picture that Matthew gives here. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Before people come to faith in Christ, they wander in darkness, everyone. They're lost, they're afraid, they're aimless, they have no purpose. Their sin blinds them to the reality that is revealed uniquely and only in Jesus Christ. But when the sinner sees the light, they recognize that their deliverance has come and they feel a sense of relief and they, they get into the spiritual car of Jesus who can deliver them and take them to where they need to be. Personally, I'm glad that Matthew includes this story because I was wandering in spiritual darkness. But God had mercy and grace upon me and revealed his light to me. Have you seen the light? And are you walking towards Christ out of the spiritual darkness? Jesus remains and will always remain the only light of the world who can lead us to eternal life. But what's even more is that in this story I can find myself because I'm not Jewish. And yet 
in just a few verses, it mentions that God's love and plan can go out to all people with faith and repentance. And the Judeans looked down on the Galileans. But Jesus went to the Galileans first and shone the light. And so we have to ask the question, then, do we really believe that the gospel is for so-and-so, for that person, for that co-worker who hates my Christianity, for that relative who drinks too much, for the homeless person who smells so bad, for the person who doesn't have the right level of melanin in his skin. God is telling us in subtle ways here in the Gospel of Matthew that the heart of Jesus goes out to all kinds of people. Now, we know that all, not all will be saved, and not all will receive it, but the offer is to go out to all. And so may God continue to soften our hearts as he had to soften the hearts of the Galileans and the hearts of the Judeans, that we'd be willing to go and share the gospel because God keeps his promises that all who call upon the Lord shall be saved. God guides the process. God keeps his promises. And God commands our penitence. So Jesus begins with a familiar message that we saw already back in, in Matthew chapter 3 from the lips of John the Baptist. Repent, the kingdom has come. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are all commanded to repent. As I said a few weeks ago, to repent is to recognize our sin and seeing it in light of God's holiness, turning away from it. And turning towards God, turning towards the cross, and receiving forgiveness. When we repent, we loathe our sin. We cast it at the feet of the cross and say, oh God, cleanse me and lead me in the way that I should go. So from that time on, Jesus commanded the people to repent, to turn away from the old way of living. And to the new way of living that is now becomes the kingdom of God. And, and in chapters to come, Jesus is going to teach us what kingdom living looks like for those that are walking in the light, for those that are in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as we saw and we'll see in a continuing manner, is, is both he, now here for all sinners. All can enter into the kingdom if they would repent and believe. And yet it's not yet, because we don't yet see the fullness of all that we will receive in Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. But we can enter the kingdom now through faith, and we'll see the full display of the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ returns. And so because we live in that tension between the now and the not yet, we pray as Jesus taught us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those that are in the kingdom of God are those who yield to the will of God, submit to the authority of God, love the word of God, and are led by the spirit of God in every aspect of their lives. And how we need kingdom people, people who are first and foremost kingdom of God people in every aspect of our society. And so whether your calling is as a doctor or a teacher or a construction worker or a homemaker, your first calling is a Christian who's in the kingdom of heaven. And then as a result, you can have an impact for the kingdom of God among the kingdoms of men. As I said in chapters to come, Jesus will teach what this new kingdom life looks like. But it will be a growing faithfulness and fruitfulness and holiness and growth 
and the church will go forth and the kingdom will grow because God will be the one growing it. But let's consider the case of Capernaum. And let's ask ourselves the question, what causes a person to repent? What happened to Capernaum? This is where Jesus began his ministry. He'll teach his Sermon on the Mount here. We'll see that in a few weeks, and we'll spend a few weeks in it. This open-air preacher who comes on a mountain, and he says some interesting and bizarre things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Love your enemies. When you fast, do so and so. Why are you worried about your life? Ask, seek, knock. Jesus taught his great sermon there. It was in Capernaum that he gave his teaching on the bread of life, where he says, I am the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for sin. Wherever he died in our place and he paid the penalty for our sin, he is the very sustenance of eternal life. He healed a paralyzed man in Capernaum. He returned sight to the blind in Capernaum. He delivered those possessed by demons. He healed a centurion servant. At least 14 miracles are recorded in Capernaum. So what was the response? I mean, if we had seen this great miracle of a man that is so controlled by a demon that he can't even speak, but Jesus drives the demons out and he begins to speak and praise God, of course we would all fall down and believe, right? Uh Uh-huh. But how did the people of Capernaum respond? Turn quickly, if you can, to Matthew chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. Jesus is in the process of rebuking those who have seen and heard things that nobody else has ever seen or heard, and yet they still do not believe. And so he he begins with the areas of Chorazin and Bethsaida. They're the neighboring villages of Capernaum. It would be like if Jesus stood up in the center of Oroville and then begins to rebuke Palermo and Biggs and the surrounding areas. And his words are harsh. But he turns to Capernaum. And remember what Capernaum had seen, what they had heard. And he says, and you Capernaum, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for you. Sodom. The city that was destroyed because of her gross immorality of homosexuality and arrogance and neglect of the poor. Capernaum will be worse. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is required. The kingdom of heaven was first announced in Capernaum. It was inaugurated there as it was promised. Miracles were performed as promised. But Capernaum did not repent and believe. What did Jesus say to them? And you, Capernaum, you'll be brought down to Hades. You'll be destroyed. This is Jesus, meek and mild. No, he's the Lord of all. He said, you'll be destroyed. And you know that for centuries, Capernaum was so utterly destroyed that critics of the Bible could find no evidence that it ever existed and would use it as an example that the Bible does not tell the truth all the time. Well, where does Capernaum? They should learn by now that they can't outrun God. 
The further we go along, the more we discover, the more it confirms the truth of the word. But we already knew that, that it was truth. In in recent decades, archaeologists have found ruins of Capernaum and show that it was a city that was utterly destroyed. Just as Jesus had promised. And so what does that leave us with today? Perhaps in your own life, you've seen God do great things. Many of you have had the privilege of being part of this wonderful body for a long time. Maybe you've seen God provide in provisions of finance or uh, a home or a job. Some of you met and got married here, raised your kids here. Some of you have gone greatly in your time here, received great blessings from the Lord. But the call to repentance still goes out because repentance is an ongoing process for the Christian. We cannot live, my friends, on past glories or on yesterday's grace. God is always calling us forward, always calling us to turn away from more and more habits that are pulling us down, from the coldness of our hearts. Because Jesus loves us more than we can even imagine, but because he loves us, he will discipline us and guide us so that we will become more like him. He plays the game seriously. He wants us to really become like him. And if you're like me, at this point, there is some fear in your heart. And that's why we lean upon the grace of God, where Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, fulfilled the law and the prophets. And because he did, and because he embraced us, we stand before the Father accepted. But now, because we are accepted, we go out and live the way that a kingdom person would live in the power that Christ has given us. And so we can sing the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It was written by a man named Robert Robinson. He wrote it after a season of doubt in his faith. But Mr. Robinson did not always stay faithful to the Lord. He fell back into a sinful lifestyle, even dabbling in heretical teachings like Unitarianism and agnosticism. It seems he did die in faith, but it was only because he returned to that gospel message that had impacted him earlier. And listen to the final uh, verse, if you will, of this hymn that we often don't sing, but we should that I think was what God used even in his own life to bring him back. It goes, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. The grace that God pours out into our lives that saves us is the grace now that will sustain us and sanctify us and hold us. And then the grace that will deliver us safely. Do you know that grace? Do you really trust God with your life? That he's guiding the processes of your life? Do you really believe that God keeps his promises? God calls us all to repent. 
Next week, as Jesus will begin more public teaching of his ministry, before he begins his Sermon on the Mount, he's going to call those who will accompany him on his earthly ministry. And we look forward to that. But until then, what are some application points that we might learn from today? Because God guides the process, you can trust him with all the details of your life. And even when your mind, like mine, can't fully understand what he's doing, you can still say, yes, Lord, I trust you because you're good. Because God loves all kinds of people, you can share the gospel with all around you. Freely, joyfully, share the gospel and call them to repent and believe. Because God has shown you the light, you can walk now in the light on a daily basis. So walk in the light. And when we walk in the light and feel the favor of God upon us, we realize, why did I ever stop walking in the light? It's the greatest thing we can do. But as part of walking in the light, repentance is a daily activity. We all have things in our hearts and minds and behavior and words that we need to continually turn away from and allow the cleansing power of the gospel to come in. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the great hope of a great gospel from a great Savior. And Father, we hear the words repent because we know that it leads us to such a great forgiveness, fellowship, and confidence in the Lord. And so would you lead us this week for your glory that we might serve you well in the joy that you give us and that the Lord Jesus Christ might have his light shine through us, that others might come and join us. To that end we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.